It doesn't take a genius to realize playing music is therapeutic. No matter what first made you pick up a six string or a four string, whether it was the raging riffs of a guitar god, the soul-stirring songs of a favorite band, mom and dad's encouragement, or hell, even dreams of strutting the stage as an irresistible sex magnet. If you fell in love with making music and stuck with it, chances are you've ended up taking solace in your guitar far more than you ever expected. I mean, what guitar junkie could even hope to count the number of times they've gone home after a crappy day at work or school, snuck away to their sonic retreat, and self-medicated using the sublime vibrations from their favorite steel or nylon string? After a nasty breakup, a stupid family fight, or some other life setback, who among us hasn't vented through power cords and cranked amps, or meditated on gently plucked arpeggios? And the thing is, although the number of guitars, amps, or pedals in your collection might give you more ways to fill your aural prescription, music's might is infinitely more significant than those trite measures. Its mysterious healing properties are as limitless as the combinations of melodies, harmonies, and chord shapes that we can play, and as inexplicably and confoundingly awesome as the questions the astrophysicists ponder as they peer out at the edges of the visible universe. Some people even become musicians because of this healing power. Study after study confirms that playing music can have real, measurable physical benefits in terms of rebuilding and strengthening neural pathways. Which is why wonderful organizations such as Guitars for Vets have helped save and restore meaning to lives through the transformative power of our beloved instrument. But between the two extremes of soothing the minor bumps and bruises of everyday life and helping former military personnel traverse the chasm of havoc carved by war and PTSD, there are countless lesser-known stories of fellow guitarists finding the strength to stare down tragedy through the healing properties of music. Here on Conversations in the Key of Life, the premier guitar podcast that talks to you about your musical journeys, we decided to share three such stories from fellow PG readers who use the guitar as a source of light in times of darkness. Our first guitar therapy story comes to us from Tim Davis of Arlington, Texas. Tim began playing guitar in the mid-60s at age 8, and by high school was so into living how he thought a rock star should live that he found himself on the front edge of an alcohol problem that went on to not only destroy his budding band efforts, but to dog him his whole life. That is, until things came full circle with his own son about a year ago. When all this started uh, in high school also was when I started drinking. That's when I discovered alcohol, so about 15 years old. Wow. Scary for me. I mean, I've got teenage boys right now, and yeah, I can only imagine how... Did your parents know, or...? No, heavens no. You know, actually, it was one of our gigs that I discovered that I really liked beer. We were playing the music, and... There were several coolers of beer laying around. And you just grabbed one. I just grabbed one. Or a few. I think I had maybe three that night, and I was just looped as all get out, and I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you play any good that night? Yeah, well, who knows? That's <laughs> <laughs> where that nonsense started, yeah. And then, what? so when did things start to go downhill from, I mean, certainly you weren't <laughs> even remotely the the first teenage boy to try a beer, but uh, somewhere it 
got out of control and kind of tore you away from the music that you loved so much? You hear about it a lot more today. Just I guess people didn't talk about it much then. But I, you know, I drank a lot in high school. Would do crazy shit like they do, and I would always be the one, you know, at the parties that's the drunkest and all that kind of. Kind of like Joe Walsh. What's that song he has? <laughs> one day at a time. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He's always the first one to go and the last one to leave the scene of the crime. We we laugh and we joke, but I mean, obviously this. It's no, it's not funny at all, you know, considering where it led, which is, you know, what you reached out to us about. So it was, it was fun for a while. What happened? That's when all that started. And that band broke up right to, right around the end of high school. And I started moving around to some different bands and playing with them. Um, never really got anything off the ground. We played a lot of music, um, never played a lot of more gigs. And then, again, some of those bands that I got involved with were uh, into dope and who other knows what other kinds of drugs. And uh, and you, this is interesting. I would never do hard drugs. Mm-hmm. I would only drink. And I wouldn't drink before I came to practice or during practice, but I would get blitzed after practice. <laughs> you, you know, your bandmates would kick your ass. Oh, no, they're probably worse than me. They're, oh, okay. They were the ones that were into the hard drugs you know, and stuff like that. But, um, so you never did the hard stuff, and you probably, like a lot of people now, had a, maybe a, a, had your guard down a little bit and this mistaken view that, oh, alcohol's harmless. It's just uh, just fun. And, and don't get me wrong. I, am, I grew up a teetotaler, but I, I enjoy a good beer. Sure. <laughs> But I I think it's probably safe to say that kids that age then and now just look at it as like, it's no big deal, you know? I'm not doing cocaine or... Right, right. And I never never tried any of that stuff. I, you know, I smoked a little dope every now and then, but uh, drinking was my thing always. But anyways, after that, I, you know, I guess I messed around for two or three uh, years in different bands and... Never got anything serious going with any of these groups. And finally, you know, I think like a lot of uh, musicians, just kind of you throw up your hands and say, screw this. And I went off to do other stuff and actually got into what I've been doing uh, most of my career, and that's photography and graphic design. Oh, cool. So, but along uh, all these lines, um, the drinking just got progressively worse and worse and worse. And uh, I actually, uh, this is my second go round with this. Cause I actually stopped, I stopped drinking for about seven years, uh, from about 2001 to 2000, 2008, the second go around. I've just, I've just stopped drinking for a year. It'll be a year next month. Congratulations. It's a slippery slope. You have to be, um, diligent. So at what point did you realize I have a problem. Well, I realized it, you know, a long time ago. Uh, the problem is having the motivation to stop. But did it take like several years? I mean, were you like oh, yeah. early yeah. 20s before you thought, okay, this is kind of out of control. I can't get through a day without drinking early or whatever? I was well into my 40s before I decided that I really I might have a problem. I, was, I did the denial thing like a lot of people do who have addiction of any kind, 
uh, everybody around you knows it, but you just forget, you, you refuse to acknowledge it, you know what I mean? Did anyone ever say anything? Uh, my wife would say something, but she was patient. Did you just think, they don't know me, I, I can handle it, I, I just... I just know I'd have a good time or something like that. Or Yeah, I did all that. You know, I lost friendships and jobs and all this stuff along the way because of it. Was there any specific thing that sort of slapped you awake? Or was it just like some weird thing someday you just were in a mood or heard a song or whatever and you just realized, God, I got to do something about this. My wife probably brought it to my attention the most... Um, this last time because she said, you know what? I'm about tired of you. <laughs> <laughs> so she had put up with it for a long time. How long have you guys been together? We've been married for 30 years. Cool. Congrats. So anyway, this last year ago, you know, she said, okay, this is it. You're going to have to go. I'm tired of this. Either, you know, get a handle on it or get out of here. And I think I was I had reached the point about my lowest point at, at that time. So I was ready to do something. So you know, just got myself together and had to saw a doctor about it. And of course, I went spent some time in uh, AA. Didn't have to go to rehab or anything, so uh, that's a good thing. Now, forgive me. I mean, this is awkward for me to ask, even though you know, after God, you know, nearly twenty years of interviewing people, but it's never usually this heavy. <laughs> <laughs> but was there a time where? You just realized it wasn't, hey, I got into drinking too early and just got dependent on it. Did you ever talk to someone and, and discover that maybe there was there were underlying things that you needed to deal with that were sort of nudging you toward alcohol? Or I did not. Now, I have had, um, I have had some counseling, and I'm, I've been treated for depression also. But I've got my, you know, that's well under control. There's not a problem. I take medication for that that's kind of what i'm wondering about is because so many people you know we as a society have not always understood things that well and of course there's more for us to learn in the future but certain things were not discussed back in those days and do you look back and see like now that I think about it, in high school, I, I kind of suffered from depression then. Or do you feel like it's more as a result of what happened as you struggled with alcoholism? Or Well, I, I can tell you uh, at this point that I suffered from depression starting in middle school. So that was before you began to drink? Yes. I was never diagnosed no one ever recognized it yeah but they didn't talk about that stuff back then did they it was just like put on a happy face otherwise everyone's gonna think you got something wrong you don't want that now i know that was an issue and it was never addressed because like you say it was just something that wasn't recognized you know how can a teenage kid be depressed you know yeah what do you got to be depressed about you got to see the beatles on tv and playing in a band, and you just have to go to school. What's so big about that? But, yeah, the stresses for kids are there. They don't They don't understand that maybe what they're going through in the big picture isn't maybe as big a deal. But Right, right. So it was a, a definite issue for me. Uh, it went on for a long time. Uh, actually, it was with us, you know, it was, it, from then until 
the rest of my life I've had to battle depression, but I didn't know it was depression back then. I didn't know why I was feeling like that. So I think uh, when I discovered alcohol, that was like something that would make you feel all better. I'm just one of those people who just are get easily addicted to things. Mm-hmm. It just happens. You can't, there's really no explanation for it. Once you, uh, I guess it would be like taking anything, you know, smoking dope or taking heroin or cocaine. Uh, once it gets in you, for some of us, uh, it's not like a, you can use it like a recreational user. It's just like in you, you have to have it. And it just gets worse and worse with time. You know, I'm fortunate. I've got it under control. Some people don't. You know, I mean, you've got people. How many people do we know about already that have come back from heroin addiction, like Stephen Tyler? And, uh, I think even Keith Richards had a heroin, was a heroin addict. I mean, it's that's terrible. Yeah. So you can do it. And this is, I guess this kind of brings us to how this the music thing has helped me so much. Uh, and getting back into the music. You know, I, I told you, I mentioned to you in my email, my son was working as a youth minister at a, lo- a local church here and started, uh, wanted to start a youth band for his youth group. What's his name? Lane, L-A-Y-N-E. Uh, he is 24. So he started that band. He started that youth band. They had drummer, bass player. Uh, he played guitar. This was about a year ago? A little bit over a year ago, yeah. And he asked me, he said, hey, Dad, um, we need a lead guitarist. Why don't you come help us out with this? Had you been playing much at all as far as he knew at that point, or do you think? Not a whole lot. We've had a little bullet strat laying around here forever that I bought for him when he was a kid. And I would pick that up every now and then play, but um, nothing like I do today. And this would have been after you got clean again, right? It was about the same time. Hadn't totally stopped drinking at that point. Was he aware of what you were struggling with at the time? You know, he grew up with it. So that was just dad, you know. I don't think he recognized it as a... If he did, he never said anything to me about it. My daughter knew it, my wife knew it, he knew it too, probably. We just never talked about it. So looking back, do you think that he viewed this invitation that he was extending as a possible means of helping you work through that or was he just he was desperate for a guitar player (laughs) (laughs) well hey however it works right that's right so uh so you started playing at the church um was this a church that you were going to already or you just this was your introduction to the church becoming lead guitarist no it was i didn't go to that particular church it was just the church he was working at i was real hesitant at first because number one i'm not a big fan of contemporary christian music Uh uh-huh and didn't listen to a lot of it, but he had this, uh, gave me this really nice, less Epiphone, Les Paul. Sort of seduce you into it. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice guitar, and uh, I eventually picked it up. I hesitated for a long time. I said, you know, when are you going to come out and play? I, was, uh, I don't know, you know, whenever. Finally picked it up and started strumming around on it, got out there and got with them. When I discovered I enjoyed playing again, uh, that just kind of lit a fire under me. And it was all about the same time that my wife decided that uh, it was time for me to get a grip on my life. Shape up or ship out. <laughs> and I agreed with her, by the way. This was all happening at the same time. So, Do you remember the first worship service slash gig where you played together with Lane at the church? I think it was on a Sunday night and they had another couple of youth groups come to see us. 
at his church and we played for them. Did you stomp on any gnarly pedals or anything to make to sort of, since you didn't say, you said you don't like contemporary Christian very much, did you try to spice it up a little bit at all? I did and uh, they told me I was too loud. You had to try, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did it proceed from there? Did you, after that first performance or? This went on for months. I mean, I was, I guess, Eight or nine months I played with them. Like every Sunday or more than that? Oh, once a week on Sunday, yeah. Mm -hmm. I worked on the stuff, you know, a lot at home, so I'd be up to snuff and ready to go. It was a little bit of a daunting task, having not played regularly for a while. But, uh, you know, I found out how much I enjoyed playing guitar again. And when you're trying to get over, work through an addiction issue... You've got to give yourself stuff to do. Mm -hmm. So playing the music for me was kind of a mind-clearing thing that I could do and also, you know, work a whole different side of my brain, uh, learning music and practicing. And, you know, it also had the calming effect on me that I needed at the same time. So it was really that whole situation with me trying to to get over my alcohol addiction, it really was a lifesaver. I have to say that. So, how have things gone over the last year? How has uh, I guess since you realized, hey, this is good for me. Besides being fun to play again, besides spending time with your son, and besides whatever um, way it may have enhanced your faith or your worship. When you realized it was helping you with your, your fighting your addiction, how did it go from there? Well, I started working. Uh, I found a local guitar teacher. He goes by Voodoo Jeff. He's been a professional for about 20 years. He has actually opened for Steve Vai out in California. Oh, nice. He has studied with, just recently, as a matter of fact, for the second time, uh, Joe Satriani. And Guthrie Govan, uh, he spent time with them probably about two months ago. He was with Joe Satriani and, and Guthrie out in California. And uh, I was just, as I was thinking about this interview, I was like, you know what? I'm a super lucky dude because <laughs> <laughs> this guy has done a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you started taking lessons with Voodoo Jeff how long ago? I've been working with him since probably March. And he has really opened my eyes to how to really play the guitar. Uh, we get into theory. We get into the music. Uh, I can use all the pedals I want. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Voodoo Jeff sounds like a dude who'd be okay with an overdrive, probably a fuzz. Oh, yeah. He, he's a very cool guy. I think he's about 40. But uh, he plays with a couple of bands, and he's recording. And, you know, having my teacher... Uh, has been really awesome. Learned a lot from him, still learning, getting into some theory and stuff like that, all the things that I really want to get into and help him become a better player. So I, you know, I work with him about once a week. I also, earlier this year, uh, developed a line of pedal boards. Oh, really? So I have, I build pedal boards and sell them. I have my own website uh, that we sell them off of. And I also have got them on Amazon. I've got them on eBay. Cool. What are those called? Well, the name of my company is Rock Foo Jazz Music. It's R-O-K-F-U-J-A-Z-M-U-S-I-K. Mm -hmm. 
Rock Foo Jazz Music. By the way, if you've ever tried to think of a name for a music company, it's hard. <laughs> so I just took everything, rock, fusion, jazz, and threw it all into the name. Anyways, <laughs> and the whole point was to make something that's affordable. Yeah. So I make them out of wood. They're not that heavy, like four or five pounds. Um, and we stain them and all that good stuff. I sell it for like $40. Nice. So anyway, long story short, we do that too. And that's helped me with... Uh, Keep my addictions under control. Yeah. And uh, it keeps me busy. Sounds like that's the key. So getting back to the music and uh, starting this little pedal board uh, deal for me has been, uh, like I say, really, literally saved my life this year. Well, congratulations, Tim. It's a, a harrowing battle, it sounds like, but it, it sounds like you are emerging the victor. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'm sure your wife and family and everyone are very glad to to see that. And, and they all deserve kudos for, I don't know, I think maybe we uh, may be underestimating Lane inviting you to jam. And uh, certainly your wife, your wife deserves major kudos for, yeah. you know, it's a tough, tough thing. She loves you tons, clearly, but she reached her breaking point, but she... She gave you the chance to fix it, and you're doing it, and you deserve you know, credit for that. And we wish you the best. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, I appreciate it. Our next story comes from Tom Peterson of Cincinnati, Ohio. Tom has spent the last several years battling testicular cancer with the aid of a very special guitar that his family pitched in to buy him at the end of his first harrowing year of treatment. His story begins in the summer of 2010 when he hadn't yet been diagnosed and was on the hunt for a new guitar purchase. I had been interested in Paul Reed Smith guitars for a while and I was going to start off with just an SE model. So I'd been saving up, it was the year of the, the 25th anniversary model. So I was saving up $600 to go buy that. My wife left town and said, well, why don't you go ahead and buy that while we're out of town so you have something to do? Well, looking through Craigslist ads, I saw a couple of Santana SEs and a Parker, and I've always wanted to try a Parker as well. So I thought, well, I could get two guitars used instead of the one new guitar. So Now, now can I interrupt you there, Tom? Because you showed me when we started off this call on Skype, we had video on for a second, and... Uh... You're in your studio, and you have a lot of guitars on the wall in there. Did you have close to that many when this story started? Yeah, I had I had several. I hadn't had I hadn't tried a Paul Reed Smith yet or a Parker. So your wife's pretty cool about all this stuff. That's that's pretty awesome. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> well, your walls are lined with guitars, man, and you recording console and three. In it. You got a lot of stuff, drum set, keyboards, so it sounds pretty cool to me. But um, yeah, all right. So continue. So I, I emailed the people about the the guitars I saw, including both Paul Reed Smiths. Uh, the first guy emailed me back. I went and picked it up, fell in love with it. Uh, picked up the Parker. It's a decent guitar too, but the Paul Reed Smith is what I fell in love with. And then when my wife got back and she saw two guitars instead of one, I told her the story, and and I still had some money left over. Well, then the first, the other guy with the Paul Reed Smith emailed me, and she's like, well, why don't you go ahead and grab that one, too, since you like it so much. So I ended up buying a Santana 
SE and then a Santana 2 SE. And I, I was just falling in love with them. Well, then, literally, I guess it was three, four weeks after that, I got laid off from my job. Oh, man. What, what, what do you do for work? I work with emergency services type stuff. So I got laid off from that job with a nonprofit organization. That job had me working so many hours. I had noticed some pain, but I didn't go to the doctor just because I didn't have time to go to the doctor. So in my opinion, it was kind of some divine intervention because as soon as I got laid off, one of the first things I did was schedule a doctor's appointment. So this is t tied directly into your story for this guitarist therapy episode, and it, it was what kind of pain? I have GI issues too, and GI issues and cancer can both give referred pain. So gastrointestinal is what you mean, right? Yeah, gastrointestinal. Um, and so, oddly enough, I was having a pain in my leg, and I was having some pain in, in my crotch, I guess is the politest word, way to say it. And so I had noticed a lump. And when I had my GI surgery back in 98, they had noticed some, some things called uh, hydrocele's in the scrotum. I know this is a great podcast, but... No, it's fine, man. You should hear the upper, other episodes. There's F-bombs flying and... <laughs> right. And this is much more serious. I you can say anything. That, this is the story. This is what happens. They're just body parts. There's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. They found hydrocele's, and basically those are just harmless things that hang out with your boys in your, in your scrotum. Yeah. But they... Uh, showed me how to tell if they were more serious than that. And it's called an illumination test. You do it with a flashlight. And this doesn't mean everything's safe, but generally if it glows under a flashlight, uh, it's safe. If it doesn't glow, it's, it's something to be looked at. Well, I found a lump and it didn't glow. Um, so I called my general practitioner who, when I gave him the story, he said, don't even come to me. He goes, I want you to go to this urologist, which that was my first thing that kind of had me a little worried. Yeah, when the doctor's like, don't see me, go to someone better. Yeah, that, I can imagine why you would be a little freaked. So I was a little freaked, and my wife had no idea any of this was going on. I just thought, oh, it's probably my imagination. And you know how it is. You look at WebM WebMD, and you think you're going to die. <laughs> so Yeah, you get a hangnail and look it up. That, that could be cuticle cancer. Yeah. So I had a hint that maybe something more serious was going on, but I... I didn't want to believe it, so I didn't tell her anything. And then um, when I called the urologist, they said, well, come in about 3 or 4. Well, then they called me right back, and they said, no, come in at noon, which, again, that's making you even more scared. Right. When, when everybody's saying, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. So I get to the doctor's office, and there is a, I don't know if he was an intern, a nurse practitioner or what, but he's like, I don't feel anything. You can go ahead and go. And. And I said, no, you're not feeling the right space. And all of a sudden, he's like, hold on. After he felt what I was trying to show him, he walks out of the office, the doctor comes in, and the first words out of the doctor's mouth are, does anybody in your family have a history of cancer? So that was, that was my clue that something, something serious was going on. And then he sent me directly to a CAT scan at the other office. He said, I want you to go right now. You're skipping ahead of the line, and we're probably going to do surgery in a few days. So all this is hitting me. And I had, I was just expecting to say, it's your imagination, go home. And your wife doesn't even know you're there. Right. Oh, man. So I go to that doctor, and I'm not going to call her because me calling her at work to tell her this stuff isn't going to do anybody any good. Right. 
So I'm dealing with this by myself. I had one friend call me at the time and I my poor friend, I said, I can't talk to you right now. I think I have cancer. Oh my God. So I get the CAT scan. I go home, wait for her to come home. So she gets off work, comes home and I'm just sitting there. I can't even say the words. And, um, I had messaged her on text saying we need to talk, which, you know, that can mean anything. That just leaves the field wide open. What did I do? Or So she walks in the door and all I can get out, well, I can't get out anything. So I hand her the bill from the urologist because that's all I have. So she's completely confused at this point. Um, and all I could do was mouth out the words cancer. And then she finally figured out what was going on with a series of hand gestures and <laughs> and pointing to my crotch and everything else. <laughs> Sorry. I'm only laughing because you're laughing and you're <laughs> Yeah, it's funny now. It was it was it was hard to explain then. I couldn't even tell my parents. She had to call my parents and tell them and, and call my family. And then um we went to the doctor a few days later and he's like CAT scan says it's pretty sure it's cancer. We're operating in I think it was three days at that point. <sighs> And he's like, and by the way, since you guys don't have kids yet, you've been trying, you need to go make a deposit just in case things don't come out well. So I don't know if you've ever donated sperm or, or done that, but it's just like they say in the movies with the, where they give you a magazine and a cup and, <laughs> and trying to do that right after somebody says, oh, you have cancer and we're operating in three days, isn't Yeah. You're not really in the mood, are you? Nope. <laughs> So we went and did that in the surgery. Um, an orchiectomy is what it's called. They don't cut your bag, for lack of a better term. They actually go in at about your waist so they can get all the plumbing as well, cause just in case the cancer started to move up your yeah. up the tube. So the surgery, um, it, it incapacitates you quite a bit. If you've ever had any cut in your, in your abdomen like that, it's hard to... All that muscle tissue and... Yeah, it's, it's hard to do anything. I wasn't allowed to lift over 10 pounds, and to be honest, over 5 pounds was, was pushing it. In terms of just like excruciating pain? or Yes, exactly. I couldn't even stand upright, really. And so I go down in my, my music room, and I'm looking at all these guitars I can't play in. And especially, uh, my Les Paul is non-chambered, so. <laughs> so it's like 12 pounds. Yeah. And this this is right after the surgery? Right. So I looked around and there was nothing I could pick up. And so I went online and I'm looking at the weights of every one of them. And the two lightest ones were the, the two PRS Santanas I just picked up, the SEs. I think they're right at five or six pounds. So that's what I, the only thing I could pick up. And, and to be honest, when you're in that state, you know, just being able to plank around on a guitar just to escape everything for a while, those two PRSs, they, they got me through it. And so we got ready to do chemo and I uh, just did one round of chemo and we had been trying to have a kid for a while. And uh, my wife said she was feeling funny. So we took a pregnancy test and she was pregnant. So that was the one bright spot we had. If you know anything about chemo, if you have to do so many steps to keep the chemo from, from, affecting anybody else well if you got a pregnant woman in the house the, the steps are, are even worse so especially that first 72 hours four days um every time i flushed the toilet i had to throw a heavy towel over the toilet um flush the toilet twice 
and then left the heavy towel up. Like she couldn't even touch any of the stuff I touched that had any body fluid on it. Wow. I was just getting to the point where I was recovering from my surgery enough, uh, recovering from my chemo enough that I felt like I could drive again. This was probably a month after the surgery at this point. And um, she had a, a problem and they told her to go to the hospital. Well, we go to the hospital and we lost the baby. So oh. within the space of two months, I'd lost my job, my testicle and, and a baby. So oh, I'm so sorry, Tom. Yeah. So it was, it was a rough period to say the, the least. And, and every time something happened, I went back to the Paul Reed Smith guitars. Cause like I said, that was the only thing I could pick up and, and they were growing on me. I, I just, I loved this, the 25 inch scale. I loved everything about them. So you know, I'm at my worst, I'm playing those, and I just, I made the decision, I'm going to start saving up and get myself an American one, a good one, which the SCs are great, I'm not saying that, I'm just, I wanted an American one. So I had started saving money, and um, and starting to feel good, like myself again, and that's when um, Christmas time came around. I had about $300 in Christmas money, and, and my birthday's right before then, so I was far away from buying a, my own American Paul Reed Smith. Well, I was, I was sitting there at Christmas and it was at my grandparents' house and and we had all finished unwrapping all the presents and you know we were kind of picking up the the wrapping paper and I wasn't expecting anything like that anyway. And so you're all sitting around the Christmas tree in Grandma's living room or yeah, and we're sitting around there and like I said, just looking and, and I noticed Dad and somebody else had left, didn't pay much attention to it. Well, then he comes back with a case. And the case didn't say PRS on the outside anywhere, so I, I didn't really know what it was and until he opened it up and I saw the Paul Reed Smith written in gold on the headstock. And then and the mirror wasn't even on my radar. I was looking for a McCarty just because that was usually what sells cheapest used. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you've played a mirror, that you can get just about any sound out of them with that split coil, and mm-hmm. they really are a workhorse. So it wasn't on my radar, but man... It's the one I won't live without now. So what what went through your mind and what came out of your mouth? Or were you speechless when you saw the gold Paul Reed Smith writing on the headstock? I was speechless. I was just like, how did this happen? And they said, we all went in together and and, and got it for you. It's used. And I, I, you know, you know how used guitars are. Who cares? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was, I was speechless. And, of course, there's no amp at my grandma's house, so... It was a long couple of days till I could get it home and actually plug it in. But I don't know. It was probably three or four months after that. I made sure I picked it up every day and played something on it. That was the one I had to go to. I, I bet that guitar in many ways became the most special one in your collection. Oh, and it still is. That's, anytime I, I go play, at some point I'm picking up the mirror. Uh, it may not be the one I play the longest that day, but it's the one I pick up every time I walk in the room. Yeah. What color is it? I call it red, but I'm sure it's a heritage cherry or something like, like a, that. Sort of an, the old classic SG mahogany red color? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so your story continues and gets pretty touching. Tell us what happened from there. Well, funny thing is, and is a week after Christmas, I just happened to walk in the Guitar Center. And I had the $300 on me that I had been saving for an American one, and that they had had a 25th anniversary fall off the truck 
in the box. Literally, the box fell off the back of the truck. Yeah, and it was the one I had originally saved up at the beginning for, um, and it was for sale for $300. There's some chip paint on it, a couple nicks on the headstock, but they said all the warranty is good and everything. It's just cosmetic. So that kind of came around full circle. Um, a few months later, we went to the fertility specialist with the, the frozen stuff I made before, and and we found out we were pregnant. So my son was born in uh, December of 2011. I had cancer in 2010. And uh, one of the first pictures we took was him holding the mirror. Oh, that's so fantastic. Congratulations. What, what's your son's name? His name's James. So everything came around full circle. The two miracles of my life, the mirror and, and my son together holding that guitar. It's crazy. These... Um... These things we love so much, wood and made of wood and steel and wire and all that, and yet there's so much more than that. You never think that, that this inanimate object is going to have such a mental connection with you and, and get you through my darkest hours, you know. Amidst all this drama and heartache and, and all that, what moments do you remember spending with those PRS guitars from the ones that you bought before and that you were able to play during your treatment and then the mirror, what take us inside some of the stuff you would play on those just to kind of, I can't tell you how many times, especially dealing with the post-traumatic stress aspect of things when the triggers come around that I've just been, I've just picked up the mirror. I've laid on my back in, in the studio and, and just plunked around on it. I mean, nothing particular and don't plug in, just lay down and try to let it take yep. you somewhere else. Just you and you and the guitar, um, just me and Mira laying there, and it's when when you feel like your body can't move on to do anything else, it seems like the music, that connection, it, it drives you, and it just for that brief moment while you're while you're contemplating, you know, that next string bend, that it, you forget everything else. Not to overstate it, man, but I don't think you can. It, it's the escape. And the comfort, and even maybe joy, even in really dire times, the joy it brings you, even if it's fleeting for a few minutes, it's uh, it's crazy. It's so powerful. And uh, again, I want to thank you for sharing your story with us. Oh, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Our final story today comes from John Naismith of Plymouth, England. And I'm not going to lie to you, it's a tearjerker. John reached out to us to share the touching story of how he began taking guitar lessons at age 45 after his 19-year-old son, Ollie, an avid guitarist since the age of 10, was killed in a car accident. I grew up as a, as a monumental Queen fan. And um, by the age of about three, if you, if you heard a Queen song, he could tell you it's Freddie Mercury singing. Uh, and so, yeah, he heard a lot of my music. And um, he showed no inclination whatsoever of wanting to play guitar until um, he finished junior school, as it is in the UK. And that was about the age of 10. And he did really well on his exams at the end of that year. And so his mother and I said to him, have anything you want. And he asked for an electric guitar, um, which was a bit of a surprise. So he was, he was bought the guitar. And um, when he went up to the senior school, um, he was to have guitar lessons. And it, he had guitar lessons with a guy called Al Hodge. 
And Al Hodge is very well known in, in the southwest of England, quite well known in the UK as a primarily session musician. He's worked with like of Susie Quattro. And Al turned out to be Ollie's teacher. I used to go and watch Al when I was a, a young lad as a teenager. And then Al was Ollie's teacher and turned him into an amazing guitarist. And, and uh, I had this situation where I was listening to music or watching music being played that I liked to hear, but it was my lad that was playing the guitar. I can remember one night um, he was doing a music course at college and um, they had to put on um, a show and there's three bands and the drummer in Ollie's band was left-handed, so they were always on last. The first band on, there was there was a guitarist playing who was really good and this old fellow was walking around saying, that's my grandson, that's my grandson. He was bursting with pride and I was dying to say to him, wait till my lad starts to play. And, <laughs> And when Ollie got up and played, I, I, again, I so wanted to say to him, that's my boy. And, and, but I got his pride. And, I, and you know, I, I love the fact that everybody loved listening to Ollie plays guitar. And when he got into that college, he'd, he had to do an interview. And then he opened up his, his guitar case because um, he had to do an audition. And the only way I can describe it, do you know in, in the film Pulp Fiction, when they open up the, the briefcase and you see all this glow and the people's faces are real surprised what's on the, in the briefcase? Yeah. It was Ollie opened up his, his case and, and inside was, was his gem. His Ibanez gem, Steve I signature model. That's what, you, what you're referring to, right? Yes. And, um, and, he, and he, he played until we say goodbye. And the guy just said, look, seriously, I need you in my college. Um, well, then he, he went on to college to do a music performance course and finished that. And he, he passed that. Um, and he left college and was, uh, uh, he was actually applying to be a, a, a firefighter. So tragic. Um, so, where take us to the the day the day that this happened, and where was he? Where were you? What? How did you find out? Okay, I at the time of the incident, I was a I was a serving police officer, and um, his sister would be Tori is his sister. She'd been staying with me. Was due to be back at home the following day on the Sunday morning to go to work. I think she'd be at work for one o'clock. And um, Ollie used to use my car, because I lived quite close to where I worked. I used to just say to him, you can have my car and use it as you wish. If I need it, I'll let you know. And, and, and he had my car, but the arrangement was on that Sunday morning, he was going to pick Tori up and take her back so that she could go to work. And he was due there at 11 o'clock. So and he'd never ever been late. And I got Tori about 10 o'clock to phone him up, just to remind him that he was due to come and pick her up. She'd phoned at home. And, uh, and her mum had said that he'd spent the night in Plymouth and he'd been out with some friends. So tried to ring him on his mobile. And the only reason for that was because I was, I was going to be cooking a breakfast for, for Tori. So I, I was phoning him up to say, if you want to come over early, have a breakfast before you go. And his phone was, was redirecting to voicemail all the time. And 11 o'clock came when he was due to be there and he still wasn't there. And then time went on, half past 11 and he still wasn't there. And Tori had to be at work for, for one o'clock. And so we were going to have to get her on the train and, and his mum and I had been talking to each other and trying to find out um, you know, if either of us knew where he was. And we couldn't. So I walked with Tori down to the railway station about 12 o'clock and um, had to arrange for her mum to pick her up from the railway station so that she could then go to work. And um, it turned out while I was at the railway station, the police had come knocking on my door to try and find me. And of course, I wasn't there. And so I then uh, came back up to my flat. Uh, there was nobody there. I'd actually walked back into my flat, half expecting to see my car and, and Ollie looking really contrite, but there was there was no sign of him. And I went in and for whatever reason, I put my computer on and, uh, and I saw on the local news that 
the local road was closed because of a fatal car accident. And so, of course, I started to get quite concerned now because Ollie was missing. I knew it was this fatal accident. And his, his mum was phoning me up. She dropped Tori off at work and she phoned me up to say, had I seen anything, heard anything? And I, and I didn't want to tell her about this accident. So she asked me um, about phoning the hospitals. And um, so I'd, I, I actually didn't want to phone the hospitals for fear of what I would hear. So, so she said she would do that. And I said that I'd walk down to the police station where I worked. So as I was walking down there, she phoned me to say that the hospitals had got no record of him. And I was probably about two or 300 yards from, from the police station and, and my phone rang and it was a number that I didn't recognize. And as soon as I answered the call, the guy told me who he was and I knew the guy, he was a policeman. We'd worked together years before, but I knew he was a traffic officer in Cornwall. Oh, God. And so as soon as he was, I, I knew all he'd been involved in that accident. And um, he didn't want to tell me over the phone, but it got to the point where I was stood in the street and and, and I basically made him tell me. And, and I heard there and then, I have some, some real issues about the way the police dealt with it all the way through, which hasn't helped. But he was desperate for me not to go to the police station because it turned out several hours before that, they knew that it was my car, they knew that it was my son driving. The guy that, um, that had made the phone call, he'd gone to the scene, had seen Ollie's body at the scene, and, and his line was that he had um, just seen a younger version of the guy he used to work with years before. And um, uh, But it took them an awful long time to tell me. And, and I, like I said, I have a lot of issues with a, the people that I worked for, I felt added to my grief. And, um, and yeah, that, that was particularly hard to deal with on top of the, the fact that it's bad enough losing a child. Oh God, John, I, I can't even imagine. I'm so sorry. I, I, I absolutely, I, I do get your, um, your, your, your condolence. I, I, I can hear it in your voice and I, I do appreciate it. And I, um, but I, but like I say, I, I, I have a, a story which I think is, is really cool. Um, Cool is probably a strong, wrong word to use in these circumstances, but what has helped me get through is, um, you know, hopefully you know, maybe somebody else might help, might help them get through. And I, and I credit my mum a lot for what happened with, you know, with the guitar thing. So tell us about how this got channeled, how this sadness and anger and bitterness, how it got channeled into the guitar. You said it was your mom's idea. How long after the accident did she suggest this? It was probably... I think a couple of weeks and um, she, my mum uh, is a woman of faith and her faith is really important to her. And she just phoned me up and she said that she's been trying, she's been racking her brains to try to think of something to help me um, with all the sadness. I imagine she felt pretty out of sorts herself, not only having lost her grandson, but feeling like she might lose you and not, you know, parent wants to do what it wants to just make things better yeah you, you do for your own don't you we see your own suffering you want to do what you can to make it better and she said about when you learn to play guitar and i had i had ollie's gem at my flat at that point and another one of his guitars and an amp um just purely as at the time because they were a part of him had you ever picked up a guitar and played it before this um the only time i'd ever done it was i said to him several years before um so how do you play this thing then and he started trying to show me stuff and i just thought this is far too difficult i joined the police at 19 and before i joined the police i had in mind that i joined the police start earning a living i buy myself an electric guitar and teach myself to play it and i spent too much time having a good time and not not buying guitars as it turns out so so i never did and, and of course then when i started doing it 
it, it occurred to me sometime that after a while that I'd grown up when I realised that all the things I wanted for myself, I now wanted for my children. And you know, I wanted to be this guy playing the guitar, but I was able to to watch my son do it, and and, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Do you remember the first time he picked up his guitar and played it? I'm not sure that I I even probably tried it before having a lesson because um, when when my mum said to me, "How about I play guitar?" I just thought, "What a brilliant idea!" And Ollie and I had seen Joe Satriani, and and I had listened. You know, one of my funny enough, I looked back sometime later and some months before Ollie died, I, I posted a live uh, YouTube clip of Satch doing Always With Me, Always With You, because I just really loved the piece. So when my mum said to me about you should learn to play guitar, it, I just thought, well, that needs to be the song that I need to learn to play. I had no idea whether it was hard or difficult or, or, or what at the time. And um, so I, I decided that's what I'm going to aim to learn. So I, I thought I need to find myself a teacher because there's no way was I going to be able to to learn to do it myself. So I I looked on the internet for, for local teachers and the, there's a guy called uh, Michael Bohr, B-A-U-G-H, his name is spelled. Uh, on his biography, it said that he'd been inspired to play watching Joe Satriani. So I, I phoned him up and I said to him, you've got to teach me to play guitar. These are the circumstances. And Mike's quite a young guy. He's um, probably only just about 30 now and um, outstanding musician. So he said, yeah, come on then. And it was about a month after all he died, that I, I had my first guitar lesson, and um, and he he showed me the A minor pentatonic scale on the on the first shape, and um, showed me the power chords and then and, and some some techniques of you know, strings skipping up and down through the the pentatonic scale, and uh, sent me away for a month to practice, and and I used to go back each month, and and he taught me bits and pieces of various songs, and, and in hindsight it was quite clearly. Um, showing me techniques and stuff to get me to the point where he thought I was ready to try to learn always and me always with you. So he had taken this really seriously. He, I, I can't even imagine getting that phone call, being Michael, and then that what a heavy responsibility, you know. But it sounds like he he came up with a plan for how to get you there. Because even that, I remember when that song came out. When I I was pretty new to guitar back in the '80s when that song came out, and even though it's pretty mellow and for Satriani it still has a lot of tricky techniques that take years to master so he had to be thinking wow I, I'm honored but wow how do I get this guy to this point he he just took it in his stride he um I, 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 saw, I stopped taking lessons a while ago because I was forgetting all the stuff I'd learned and um but I, I they put on local shows in Plymouth they get some names in every now and again and Paul Gilbert came over, Andy Timmons has been over and um, so they, they, you know, through him I've, I've, I've had a chance to meet some some spectacular guitarists and, but, but yeah Mike was, um, he never struck me as having any concern, it was, he just seemed to say yeah okay that's what we'll do then and when I was a year in uh, I said to him I've been learning for a year now and where do you think I am, how, how do I, and um, he said what do you mean, I said well yeah Good, bad, and different. What do you think? And he said, "Well, you're playing Satriani. So, how many of your friends didn't play Satriani? Most of my friends don't know who Satriani <laughs> is. You know, there was times when, as you can imagine, I was in a, in a really bad place, and uh, and I'd sit down and play some guitar and, and get frustrated at my own lack of ability. You know, there was times when I'd, I'd find it really frustrating, and I'd go and have a lesson, and, and I'd come away from a lesson feeling really good, despite everything that was going on around me. 
to his credit, Mike, uh, this knack of making me think I was doing really well and um, and, and really coming on. I, the line I use, I, you know, Ollie didn't get his, his talent from me. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that at all. I'll tell you what, John, I bet that even if he had, you know, every teacher had students at varying degrees of adeptness and, you know, learning at different paces, but I bet you probably meant more to him as a teacher than just about all those other students just because of what he was helping you work through, you know? Yeah, he, he obviously got my situation and, and where I was. And um, and, and as I say, he, he, he was a great teacher and, and, and it really, really helped. Try to take yourself back and I know it's been several years and, and it's chock full of moments of despair and and all that but do you remember after that very first lesson with Michael how you felt because it was had to be like cathartic and uh in a way a bittersweet new realm that you were exploring and yet like oh <laughs> the same time a whole new world of just like looking at things and discovering new muscles and ways of moving your hands and all that. Do you, do you remember what was going through your mind after that lesson? Yeah. I, I, I had on New Year's Eve, Ollie died on the 6th of December. That New Year's Eve, I posted a message on his wall, which basically said, I'm going to learn to play guitar. And I, I again posted the video of Satch and I, and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to learn to play guitar and this is what I'm going to learn to play. And I said, it will probably take me many years. And, and I, so that Ollie probably would have learned it within, you know, an afternoon. But um, and then when I, having said that, you know, publicly announced this is what I was going to do. I then had my lesson probably a week or so later. Now you mentioned Ollie's Facebook page, and it reminded me that in your email to me when we first put this out there, that we were looking for stories, touching stories like yours. You mentioned that you've got a YouTube channel for yourself where you share some of your own performances um, of pieces that you've done for various things, including a couple of you playing Joe Satriani's Always With Me, Always With You. And and it's, um, you're to be commended on so many points here. It's so, such a touching story, but you've also been very public about all of this, um, including these videos, you know, it, it's tough being in videos no matter how long you've been playing. There are people I know who've played for decades who can't stand being on YouTube or on videos because it's, it's such an intimate thing, you know, and especially if it's all focused on you and it's not a performance with a group or whatever. But what is it that drove you to set up this YouTube channel and put these pieces out there? One of my big things is keeping Ollie's memory alive. He was an immensely popular young man. And um, I, I have this thing about, um, you know, obviously he's on my mind an awful lot of the time. And I just want to remind people about him. And um, and I think when people see me playing guitar, people know me, know why I play guitar. There's two or three, I think, videos of me doing Always With Me, Always With You and, and varying levels of, of success. The first one it was just purely about this is where I've got to. And, <laughs> and having been learning for five years, I, you know, I've got to the point where I've achieved that I've averaging one song for every year I've been learning. And, um, and, I, and I'd say I've now gone up to six. 
if you look at the number of views on on the on the YouTube stuff, there's there's not a lot of views, and yeah, I don't expect people to to go nuts over it, and I and I, you know, and I and I expect some people would critically look at it and think, yeah, not very good, um, which I get because I I don't claim to be um, hugely talented, but it's for me it's a, it's a real achievement, you know, if I can play it well enough in one take, and and on some of those it's taken an awful long time to get that good take. Um, but if I can play it well enough that I'm pleased with it, then I'll post it. And, and people are really supportive, and it's it, it's really encouraging when people say nice things about what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Do you mind talking a little bit about how this process was therapeutic for you? Yes, of course. The um, it, it's in two ways. The, the one way has been the play, and the other has been the um, the guitarist that I've I've spoken to about Ollie. When um, Andy Timmons came to Plymouth, he he did a clinic and. Um, and I talked to him after the show, told him about Ollie, and, and I have um, plectrums with Ollie's picture on, and, and I gave him one of those, and, and he was, it was amazing, and he was so genuinely sincere when when he talked about how sorry he was for what I've been through, and of course within probably after my first lesson or so, I I had the only bars of always the me always you tattooed on my arm, and um, uh, and it was almost like right this is this is what I'm going to do, and, and I'm going to have to do it because I've got it tattooed and. <laughs> Ollie played a version of um, The Spirit Carries On when he was at college. And the solo he plays in that is just amazing. And he was carried into the church to that song to his funeral. And there's a granite bench on the pier in, in Luke with his name and, and the dates. And it just says The Spirit Carries On. So there's all, I've got all this, this music, which, which means so much to me. There's you know, Always a Me, Always a You is, 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 is a big, big deal for me, obviously. And when I first got um, my flat, when I first got divorced, I, I bought a drum kit. And then um, I, I was teaching myself to play the drums using a DVD. And, and I, I, I never told Ollie, but I wanted to play well enough so that I could drum for him. That's so neat. And I, and I used to play along to Whispering a Prayer. And, um, and I just thought that would be so cool if, if he and I could do that. Now, the Whispering a Prayer is a Steve Vai tune, right? Yes. Um, I was uh, doing a meet and greet with Steve Vai, and what an amazing guy. We must have talked for about an hour. Just you and Steve? Three other guys were there at this, this meet and greet. But he was so, so genuine, so sincere, so caring. And he, and he obviously loved the fact that Ollie played a jam. Around my tattoo with the, with the, um, the, the Always and the Always of You, I've got the Tree of Life tattooed along it as well. And That's from a Steve Vai album, the cover, the artwork, right? And it, it, comes, it goes up the, the neck of his guitar. And I told him my daughter's got the, the tree tattooed on her ankle. So he, he, as soon as I told him that she had this tattoo, he, he said, well, she needs a T-shirt. And he signed her a T-shirt. And, and then that night, just he's about to do Whispering a Prayer, he just says, this next one goes that to Ollie. Steve Vai, who had years before bent down while playing and stuck his face in Ollie's phone while he was recording him at Hammersmith, then dedicated a song to him and, and the song that meant so much to me. And then, as it turned out, somebody had videoed that. And so I, off YouTube, I've got the video of, of Steve Vai dedicating the song to Ollie. It seems to me, as you do all of these activities, play your guitar and, and try to carry the memory of Ollie to his heroes that he he's walking beside you through these things in a sense. Absolutely. They, they, so you say they've all gone away with, with one of Ollie's picks in their pocket. I saw Satriani last night actually in Bristol. Yet again, he played Always Me, Always With You quite beautifully. Uh, and as soon as they start the little shake a bit at the start of the, of the song, um, I thought, you know, here it comes. And suddenly I could feel myself choking up and I sit and I watch this guy play this this amazing piece of music with tears pouring down my face. And, and I've, I've seen him 
three times since Ollie's died, and yeah, and and undoubtedly that that piece of music will have the same impact on me every time I see him play it, and I'll see him every time I get the chance to. And yeah, likewise with, with Steve Vai. Thank you so much for sharing your story, John. It means the world to us. But it's been been really good talking to you, Sean. Thank you. I'm Sean Hammond, and you've been listening to Conversations in the Key of Life, the premier guitar podcast that talks to you about your musical journeys. Thanks for joining us.